person is many wonderful things. An award-winning journalist, a writer, a visual artist, a parent, and the author of Families in the Digital Age, a book about parenting in this very complicated and tech-heavy time. Tony was born in Durban, South Africa, and grew up on Gadigal land in Sydney. And we're so excited to have Tony on the show and really fascinated by her explanation that her social practice and multimedia work is an intentionally democratic act, tying together themes of personal and collective histories, identity, resistance, and the intersections between the sacred and the secular. And Lily and I were so pleased to speak to Tony about her passion for connection, something that's close to our hearts at Australia Remade. And it was really clarifying to have Tony talk about the way that oppressive laws and injustices are not inevitable, but they're actually manufactured. We also talk about the importance of getting muddy and remembering the world outside of the curated online space. This is a conversation for those of you wanting to rethink the role of big tech in our lives. Tony gives us some wisdom on reclaiming control as individuals, and we chat about the potential for bigger changes that would put public good at the heart of our relationship with tech. Have a listen and check out the links to her incredible artwork in our show notes. Wonderful to be back with you today. Um, we're really lucky to have Tony Hassan with us, uh, who has quite an extraordinary mixed bag of talents and life focus. Tony, you're an author, a parent, an artist, an activist, an award-winning journalist. And in my kind of delving into a little bit more about you, it seems like you're an award-winning across most things that you do. Um, so we're so delighted to have you here today. And We'll get into some of the details and themes of your book and your work, but I guess I'm really interested to know what drives your work, all, all of your work, um, and what has really shaped the way that you think about the world? What a big question. Thank you, I know, you, we're Lily. starting big. <laughs> and, and thank you, Lily. I've really appreciated this opportunity to, to reflect, actually, um, and no, I'm not award-winning everything. And in fact, living in a city like Canberra, you realise you know nothing. Um, it's it's a, it's a really intense, earnest city full of PhDs. So you, you, you quite frankly, I'm quite insecure here. But um, let's celebrate what is. And what drives me is making connections. What drives me is anything that thickens our relational selves, that um, encourages strength-based thinking, that builds community, um, that encourages reflection, uh, that creates space for processing the complexity of our world, that encourages moderation, that builds, I think, um, Ubuntu, <laughs> the idea that I am because you are. So that's a huge driver. But in terms of key sh uh, forces that have shaped how I've come to that or um, help percolate, percolate the, the drive, um, it would be apartheid, apartheid South Africa, um, you know, it's, it, it was a crude and brutal, uniquely South African political experiment um, that can't not have a legacy. Um, so naturally it shaped my birth country, it shaped my family. It was a key reason for us as a family migrating to Australia in the 70s. But above all, it developed an interest or understanding in politics and social justice in systems uh, of power, systems of power that are invisible as much as visible and, and how ultimately change happens. So as awful as that uh, system was, and I don't want to assume you, you know it, I mean it's, it's recent history, but how quickly we can forget. Um, it segregated people uh, according to colour. And, um, yes, the, the layers of affect or impact are profound and uh, we could spend oh, the whole hour discussing that. 
Yeah, I I was really struck by um, in a email you and I had where you talked about um, what you've called your interest in systems that we inherit, and that idea that there are these sort of invisible systems that we carry with us or we're connected to um, and and how we do make them more visible. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because we're really interested here in that in the way that systems, you know, like you're saying, invisible systems and what they mean for how we understand our past but also how we build onto our future. Absolutely. So um, at a very basic level, it's about the stories we tell ourselves, the stories that are told to us that end up shaping those systems. So systems go deep, they are cultural, they are the water we swim in, in a sense. And apartheid, first and foremost, created layers of discrimination and established um, uh, a hierarchy of worthiness. So you were worthy if you were white, You were worthy if you were so-called coloured, as my family or tribe were, but you were more worthy if you could play white as a coloured person. If you had blue eyes, uh, if you had straight hair, as my stepfather did. But for my mother, who um, was is gorgeous, and but but um, but brown, clearly brown, it was that anticipating um, anticipating others' prejudice, which puts you in your box, um, narrowed her horizons, flattened her agency. And, you know, she didn't, like many, you know, take that into, a, into protests. She wasn't an activist. Both my parents, my stepfather and mother, were not activists because they were the meat in the sandwich. Oh, if we raise our voices, we might, um, our political masters might take the crumbs they've left us under the table. So so a lot of so-called coloured people were never very political, but they were subversive in their own way. You know, they might, they might enjoy a swim in the whites only part of the beach when no one's looking, you know, or catch that bus and sit at the front. Small acts of subversion happened all the time, but it above all um, led to my elders internalising shame. And that has an effect. So as confident as I may appear and with um, awards um, after my name, it's, it's, it's still there. It's still a, oh, why is that person not as friendly? Is it because of my colour? <laughs> um, and uh, and I, f- I find myself ca- catching myself about that and having to overcome these invisible prejudices or, in fact, small anxieties. But as for systems, I mean, apartheid, um, like no other political system, helps us see how the law is manufactured legislation passed by parliaments and, in fact, the courts are constructs Um, and they reflect the stories we've told ourselves or have been told to us. They reflect a value system. They reflect a belief system. Um, And so the Dutch reformist church is behind the, the, the political system known as apartheid, which, of course, has a legacy here in the white Australia policy. Uh, it ricocheted el- elsewhere, so th- this is this is deep. <laughs> this is so deep, and you know when you get that the law is manufactured, you go, oh yeah, right. Changing the constitution, it, it, it is an emerging or should be a document that does change as we assert a, a different set of values or reflect on our past and say it needs to look different. Um, so that's. That's kind of something of of the um, the seed for my lifelong interest in understanding systems, the way they can either create space for us to thrive, equip us to be the people we wish to be, or diminish us. I feel like that's a good segue in a strange way into tech, which is this other area that you've got really interesting expertise and background writing about because 
We can look today at a system like apartheid or Jim Crow, which was the version of it in the country of my origin, the United States, and we can think that is a terrible, evil system. That was not natural law. There was nothing inevitable about that. That was human decision-making that was bad and human decision-making that was changed and we can continue to change. But with other systems that we can be in, it's like a fish trying to imagine a different kind of water. You know, we can feel so enmeshed in it. And I think that's how we feel about technology today. And you've written about big tech and you published this book before the pandemic hit about families in the digital age, which I'm curious, you know, because it feels like our screen time probably just even went through the roof further from there. But I'm curious what led you to kind of want to write about that in particular and dive more deeply into that. Mm. Well, can I take you back to the world I inhabited and why suddenly, suddenly it appeared to be a problem well before I think we were talking about digital addiction. So um, we've touched on, I guess, um, the reality that we can't be who we can't see. So my parents didn't aspire to be doctors and lawyers because there weren't any coloured, so-called coloured doctors and, and lawyers. You could only be um, a tradesperson or a nurse or teacher that taught and nursed coloureds. So it's a very insular world. And so when, even though I lived in on Sydney's northern beaches and there was clear social mobility, um, with lots of opportunities, but I didn't see doctors and, and lawyers but what I did see was people on the telly and I did read newspapers and I did um, absorb a lot of ABC radio. So, it's, oh, that, that was a good fit and it sort of sat with my interest in systems and telling stories. So hence moving into journalism, studying communications and having um, my formative adult life um, at the ABC. Now, you could sort of do the job, produce a story for that evening's ABC PM and then clock off. And then with the digital revolution, and it is a revolution, you couldn't clock off. You're tuning in on your phone and you're checking in with who's reading it and you're responding to comments and you're spending a lot of time there um, anticipating the next story and you're only as good as your last story so you're sort of on edge and you're never at peace and there just was no time for respite and both my husband and I as ABC alumni are like right um, and it was having an effect on his mental health as a high um, I guess a high profile journo and there was some ugly things said and um, shared there and at one point he said I'm just I'm going to turn comments off. Um, so it was the, that's the beginnings of me thinking, oh, what's going on here? Despite the promises of new, you know, forums for um, healthy debate and respectful ideas sharing, quickly Twitter turned. Um, and we had moved to Canberra. I'd left the ABC and I was working in probably the best job of my life um, for a high energy MP in, in this city as his media advisor. So even though I'd left the transactional and high stress space we call a newsroom, I was now in another high stress space where I had to be on my phone seven days a week um, responding to calls from media at, at five in the morning. So I was sort of there again and I was like, this isn't good for me. Meanwhile, our kids in emerging adolescence were discovering the iPhone and I could see the impacts on, on them. And there was a, a great deal of projecting, I thought, um, and also a lack of, of peace, <laughs> a lack of space for blue sky dreaming and being bored and trying new things because um, they couldn't live without it, just as I couldn't live without it in my, my job. And I thought, what can I do? What's 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 possible here? And I thought I need to be in other modes, as it were. I need to model something else. And um, that was when I thought, no, as much as I've loved appreciating systems and being part of potentially new systems in politics, I needed to try something else. And so with a longstanding interest in visual arts, 
went to art school. Um, so that's the sort of trajectory post ABC. But yeah, it's 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 about all of us, right? We we are all there. Um, without like I think the sacred and the secular are indivisible increasingly the digital and our non-digital lives are indivisible and it's checking yourself and saying is this good for me um and so yes the book was came out of panic pure panic about what can I do and at the time the literature was emerging and no one really understood the opaque systems behind tech at the time and so I went in search of sort of literature on that and so I tell personal story and I come to five, um, you know, it's, it's a bit gimmicky, but five steps, right? <laughs> and I can go through those steps that might help us find balance. Yeah. Well, maybe even before we go to the sort of those steps for practical things, like I was really struck in reading some of your book about that moment where you say, you know, my daughter drops her phone down the toilet and she felt both panicked and relieved. And I thought, like, I know that feeling. Like, I know that feeling. Just recently my phone battery died and I thought, oh, I can't recharge it. And I had this moment of panic and then, like, oh, I'd be off the hook. Like, oh. And that that interesting thing between, you know, we talk about being in the present and, you know, phones and tech are forcing us to be in the present in a way that actually gets rid of a different sort of maybe higher quality presence. I just, I just, I bet so many listeners are like picturing that phone going down the toilet and like half tempted to just drop theirs right now. Like I I think we all really do. Yeah. feel Absolutely. My first year at art school, actually, there were a number of um, young people who did work where they were just literally videoing themselves, smashing their phone. (laughs) That sounds amazing. I did a, a work of an old iPhone with um, hand-picked rose thorns. So the back of the phone has rows of thorns. And, and so it is this object, a sacred object in our lives. We're tethered to it and yet we feel this strange release when we recognise we don't have to be tethered to it or we can't be tethered to it. <laughs> Yeah, so I do start the book with um, my do- my darling eldest daughter, who's um, now overseas, actually, and it's it's bizarre because it's like you're somewhere else. Can you just like actually be somewhere else? Because we can talk now all the time. I'm like, you know, create space to be- immerse yourself in another world for a moment, and not feel that you have to connect in multiple ways, in multiple, um, you know. Over, across multiple time zones like you know I, I I you will relate to this you know just the idea of going abroad and switching off and or anywhere really I remember the humble internet cafe when you like when that was the only time you could I went backpacking after uni and the only time I got in touch with people was when you sat in an internet cafe and checked your email and it was so exciting and what would it be now and then you can come back after that and tell the family, relive the story again, rather than the family being like, oh, yeah, I saw it on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen, we've seen today's shot of photos. Thanks very much. Tony, Yeah. I, I thought the other interesting thing, and I know Lily's got a few questions for you, but the other interesting thing that really struck me, and I can't remember the phrases, but was the way you were saying for young, for teenagers, and I think this applies actually for those of us older than that, that your identity on the internet or on a, on social media is sort of already packaged. And for kids who are exploring their identity, you know, as that's what happens as a teenager, um, social media forces you to have a prepackaged version of yourself. Um, and I thought that that really struck me as interesting, particularly in the context of, you know, the world as it is today and we're all learning and, and, and responding to a complex world. And Lily and I have been having these interesting conversations for ourselves about what the boundary is for us between our private lives and how much we share on the podcast or on our work social media or our private social media. And I think we're quite wary of that line. How much do, of ourselves do we share so that we are authentic and how much do we just keep really private and 
that was something I found really interesting in your work is that that balance between private and public um, and, and that increasing sort of tension there. Well, obviously we're all, especially your um, organisation, is committed to the public square. Um, so it's understanding what we mean by public. Um, for me, public is... Um, about it's about accountability, it's about being seen, it's about creating spaces for spontaneity, not um, manufactured, highly performative <laughs> um, appearance. It's it's allowing yourselves ourselves to be ourselves. Um, and yes, the the digital space invites our young people who are still working out who they are and of course we're all emerging I'm still emerging but but at a critical stage in their um, pre-adult life to ask big questions and to test um, themselves in safe ways you know so to sort of do silly things but then expect and be forgiven to um, to play for its own sake, not gaming, which is highly competitive and is addictive. And so, you know, it's it, while these are public platforms in a sense, it's social media platforms that allow for all kinds of interactions, they um, are, they, it's quite straight jacketed. It's, it's prescribed. It's, um, these are commercial forces, invisible largely commercial forces and the algorithms are encouraging a particular kind of look, a particular kind of um, beauty. And Instagram is particularly, um, uh, you know, known for its um, narrowing of what is okay or what is worthy. Um, so even though my eldest is just gorgeous in so many ways, just so joyful, um, she 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 shrank in that space. She was overwhelmed by, I guess, images of other beautiful people, but also began to um, manufacture her profile in a way that helped her feel better there, but then made her more conscious or less able to be in the real world. I can I can play with it in the digital, but oh, if I go to the shops and ask it, you know. Um, an attendant for my size, oh, what will she think of me? Because, I, you know, I can't control myself in the way I can control what I say online. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's, a, it's emerging, isn't it, the, the, the stuff out of the Australian Bureau of Statistics on Australia's mental health. Something's going on. Something seismic is going on, compounded by certainly the pandemic. But... Children and young people are experiencing unusually high levels of anxiety and it's that I'm always on <laughs> and the the phenomena of, um, I guess, what's known as the intermittent reward system at work. So, oh, I, I, I may be criticised there or I may feel insecure there or I may be affirmed but I'm going to go there anyway and then you, you're rewarded or you're not and even though you've had bad experience, you go back because of the prospect of being rewarded again. So that's how the whole followers and likes things work. It's it's tapping into our need to be liked. Um, but we're never really known there. You see, this is its problem. Um, it, it's, it is fundamentally superficial. And I, I'm not dual-minded about it. Of course, lots of people connect there and find communities of interest. But it's 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 a it's um it's a junior burger versus a three course meal, you know. <laughs> all all that all, all the Big Mac. You know how you feel after a Big Mac Ugh. versus something wholesome, nourishing, deeply satisfying. When you know, in company around the table, you're being listened to. People are trying to understand. And there's that ebb and flow in conversation that, that, that allows you to be rather than to perform, I think.
I just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking, well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I want to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. I love this so much and my brain wants to go into three different questions for you at once. I'm going to try to order them. But like, firstly, I'm thinking about this as a mother and I've got two young kids, five and eight at the moment. And all the advice that we get about screens and, you know, I feel like I'm, they're still at an age where I can keep a lot of that at bay, but already there's social pressure for my eldest to, you know, talk to her friends through Facebook chat and things that I just think, no, like, no, you don't need that. You see them at school. It's fine. But there's going back to that idea of narratives. There's this narrative of inevitability. This is coming and you're going to be swimming against the tide more and more and more. And I think there's this both and challenge of trying to navigate this as individuals and empower people as individuals, but also talk about the way that you know, you talked about Big Macs a minute ago, like if we talked about big tech in the way that we talked about big tobacco or big sugar as like a, a potential threat to our public health, to our children's well-being and development, something that needed to be regulated, that this were these were big forces, you know, by deliberate actors, like, and, and not to sound um, one-dimensionally like super negative about it, but like this is a business model, you know, surveillance, capitalism, and what you call the attention merchants, like this is a business model of, of hooking and distracting us. And, and you know, why, like that we need to step up more in kind of taking that on and, and thinking about this is how do we change the rules so that these technologies serve us rather than just trying to profit from us? Am I being kind of railing against the system because because my other my other brain my other hat is you're a journalist you're an artist these platforms these technologies are now essential today in public fields like that to putting yourself out there or at least it's seen as if you're not on these platforms and I say this myself like I'm not on Twitter and I know that that comes potentially at a cost you know so it's like we're grappling with this as individuals and professionals we're grappling with it as parents we're grappling with it as partners and friends and how technology shapes so much of our experience now. Absolutely. Well, when I wrote the book really about supporting children and young people, several people said to me, can you write the book now about how I get my husband off? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is affecting all of us, ultimately affecting the, the quality of our relationships. And so to help you navigate that space, I would invite you to think about what is my small self versus what is my big self? So, you know, I decided not to be on Facebook because it fed my small self. Am I enough? Who am I there? Am I okay? Tapping into that apartheid legacy stuff, you know, am, am I worthy? It really fed my insecurities. It was not helpful. And I thought, you know, and then the prompts about people's birthdays. <laughs> like, if, if it mattered, I'd get on the phone. So I was in a teenage, I was like, I had lists of people I was going to call because I wasn't going to wish them happy birthday on Facebook. I had to call them, you know, I had to have a real conversation. So I just, it was a lot of emotional energy, just a waste of, um, a waste of, I think, the, 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 uh, the little girl in me, it, 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 it made that little girl in me quite insecure. So, um, for good reason, I'm not on Facebook. I am intermittently there on Twitter, really because I'm interested in these issues about systems accountability and holding, you know, uh, our elected representatives um, to account. So 
that was, yeah, that was, that's why I am there. But I, I, I say to myself, how can I not be, not participate in our national sport, which is to whinge, um, but, but say something positive. So on some days I'm like, today I'm just going to try and find something good to say, you know, what I love and a picture of the sunset. But then in the end, you know, it's like the Lunik cartoon. It's like he's looking at the telly of a beautiful sunset and there's a beautiful sunset out the window. Um, it takes us, it takes away, it's about ways of seeing and it diminishes, I think, the horizon. Um Yes, there's a place for these social media platforms, but it's finding balance so that I think we are able to animate our bigger selves, not our little selves. I just love that, Tony. Like I'm actually feeling a little bit teary when you said that about the small self and the big self because it just felt like, oh, permission not to participate in the crap, you know, and that that idea that we can feel so overwhelmed, I think, by, you know, big tech and by the powers of like, oh, Facebook controls everything and if I'm not on Facebook, I'm not going to know about anything. And it says actually we can, you know, we can withdraw our consent. Our little selves do not have to, you know, like we can we can choose our big self. And and I really love that and I love your the way you're talking about Twitter because for me, Twitter is a really amazing tool that needs to stay in its box in my life. Um, but, you know, I've connected and made amazing relationships across that platform, but I have really clear rules for myself, which I think is basically only be my big self there. You know, no, no negative, uh, only lift other people up, don't participate just because everyone else is saying it, you know, only contribute when there's something. So I, I love that idea of... But we are dual-headed, aren't we? And we have to make a choice about am I going to be my big or, or small self today? You know, between my time at the ABC and working in a federal MP's office in opposition, so keep in mind you wear a particular hat in opposition, which is um, adversarial, which is, um, you know, <laughs> about point scoring. And so I found I was wearing that, that cloak you know, it was, it was so easy to sort of critique um, on Twitter and and have fistfights with words. So um, you, you kind of have to notice what you're wearing, notice how it feels. Am I burdened by this or, is, or do I feel lighter? Does this help me be the person I really want to be? Does this help me be with the people I love? I mean, the, the greatest currency or asset we have is our attention, is our capacity to be truly present, to be with people, to sit with them in the mud. Um, and, yeah, I thought it just was not helping me be that. And, you know, I, I don't want to beat up on parents. It's hard for all of us. But we risk being um, um, benignly negligent because of the tyranny of the urgent the online world forces everything that's just arrived in your inbox or, you know, in a text message um, or notification via one of those platforms appears urgent and we're drawn there despite knowing what matters and the children in our lives who need us, we, we're drawn there. And I was like, no, no, this is not, this is not cool. Um, and, of course, it's just about, for me, modelling something else, so hence the arts as you know finding other forms or modes that said oh you can be in the world in other ways it's finding balance and um it's coming back to you can't be who you can't see um so yeah good luck lily <laughs> thank you <laughs> i mean maybe those five those five steps you i cut you off before tony on the five steps maybe now is a good yes, time yes please to I, i'm taking us. notes <laughs> Well, just to say I'm imperfect as a parent and this is not, you know, um, with humility, uh, number one is recover conversations and we've kind of canvassed that this this this, this time today. Um, the value of like seizing on the reality in your parenting of feeding people, like you go to a lot of trouble <laughs> to feed people and you may as well you know, capitalise on those mealtimes with intentional conversation, you know, not 
big questions about how what, what we think um, of you know Russia, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you've got the choice, the iPhone or a conversation about Russia. <laughs> How to do that side-by-side -side stuff, uh, you know, the create space for, for sharing, for understanding and for mercy. I think, I think what the world needs is mercy. <laughs> um, so we, because we are of the Christian tradition, I mean, the, the surname Hassan is of Islamic um, origin out of the Mideast. And my father, uh, you know, studied the Quran, came out of Islam. His father was an imam. But the uh, teachings of Christ inform very much the way I see the world. It, is my, it, it definitely frames my worldview. And so we do start a, a mealtime with, oh, what's been good today? What are you grateful for? Uh, what was tough? Um, what, what did you find difficult? And, and we give thanks. We, we I think... Because what the phone does, this in this uh, ubiquitous phone does, is it ritualizes our lives in ways that actually we know aren't good for us, but we go back there. So, how do we create alternative rituals that do nourish and build community? So, you know, it's a small thing, but we do faithfully say grace or give thanks for our day and the food we're about to eat. And it makes us present. I think that's what any contemplation, meditation, prayer might do. It makes you present to what is now. Um, so, you know, where did the food come from? <laughs> How many hands have helped prepare this? It's just, it just, yeah, takes us out of ourselves a little bit, which is good to find our true selves. So recovering conversation and I sort of explore the value of mealtimes to help you do that. Um, the, the, the next, um, bit of wisdom, um, is regaining a present and calmer mind. That's a continuum here. It's what can we do that helps us, um, untangle or, you know, quieten the noise in our minds. Um, and yeah, there's, there's everything from yoga to, you know, there's been an explosion in mindfulness apps and the like. But it's finding what's right for you and it being organic to your life. You know, I don't think you need to do courses and, and go on retreats, especially if it means being absent from the people you love. It's, it's finding ways to regain a present and calmer mind. Um, reclaiming the wild is, is the next chapter, exploring by that the wild, exploring public spaces. So going to the park loving green spaces in your neighbourhood, celebrating those, um, creating wild spaces for inclusivity in the public arena, but also, of course, things like bushwalks, um, gardening, cultivating an interest in the great outdoors. And we're so blessed in this country um, to do that. So that's that's the... Next chapter. And then finally, reclaiming or rediscovering the low-tech arts. Now, there's plenty of arts that involve the digital, but I'm saying, okay, that has its place. But what can you do that really gets you in material, engaging the material world and losing yourself in that, whether it be clay or pastels? Um, yeah, and I can tell you a few stories about, I think, the power of, of that. So, when I was visiting regional New South Wales on a, a mini book tour, I bumped into um, the local regional gallery and spoke to the curator there and she just had run a, a holiday program for kids. And I said, how did that go? And she said, oh, great, you know, this is what we do. But one of the dads who came to pick up his child was so embarrassed and so apologetic that his girl had left paint on the chair um, oh, that is why we use iPads at home to draw. It's just not messy. And, oh, I was like, <laughs> let children be children, right? Um, so creating spaces in your home to make mess, to, to play with plasticine, to play with sticky tape and collage, to, to explore the material world in ways that are safe and say, oh, um, 
Right. I, I can I can use my head and hands and heart. I can make um, and in making, you know, have agency. I think that's the sadness is that we were all doing that as kids and we should all be doing it as, as adults. But, but the inner critic says, oh, I can't be creative or I'm not an artist. Um, and we encourage it in our kiddies, knowing, you know, about the value of hand-eye coordination and dexterity or, or, or building agency in them at that age. But something gives or we lose connection with our, our creative selves because I think of our self-consciousness as we get older. And the internet, or rather the way we interact online, creates hyper-self-consciousness. So while I see a lot of creative things there, occasionally I go to Instagram as a visual artist and go, no way. <laughs> like I'm so overwhelmed <laughs> by the sheer amount of it. I'm like. I, I think um, I just love your, your point about um, you know, phones and tech have become the rituals in our life and, you know, finding other rituals outside of that. Cause that's so true for me. It's a, it's a really good reminder. And I think a lot of what you've said is really summed up in like, remember there is a world out there that you can touch and feel and explore. And that is a really powerful thing, not just for individuals, but for our collective ability to engage as a community. And I, I love your kind of call to use the public spaces you know I've, and I've often thought maybe we should have meetings on buses you know they're public things and we could we could have meetings to the areas where there's not enough people on the buses so we keep the bus routes alive and you know like that idea that we have to use these public goods these democratic goods to keep them absolutely alive. and weren't we at risk during COVID of losing some of those public assets you know they reduced the numbers of buses going and then yeah, and then thankfully in the ACT, fares were waived. So, you know, they, they encourage more of us to get back on. Great idea. I mean, you know, public transport's a system and um, good systems are some, sometimes die on, on, on the vine because uh, we forget their value. Public libraries, you know, how they've shrunk over time. Public pools. So our lives generally have become not just because of the digital but other you know, cost-saving measures have meant that we've lost public assets. So, I mean, we've in our work on the public good, you know, we've often talked about we want infrastructure that enables connection and, and community to flourish, so a lot about what you're talking about. And we've also sort of been thinking about, well, the model of big tech has to change. We want it to serve the public good and not profit from disinformation, polarisation, you know, addicting children and adults, and I think adding to that kind of privatising us in our homes and in our public spaces. What what do you think it would look like for big tech or for us to sort of transform the way this tech is used to be in the public interest? Oh, big question. Um, so I guess it begins with um, we can't claim to be ignorant about it. Um, it's kind of like those conversations you might have with your young teen when you give them their phone for the first time do you know what this is <laughs> um, how it works I think it's sort of digital literacy 101 not just about how to make sure your privacy is protected there by turning on or off particular notifications or limiting the amount of data harvesting that's happening by default, you know, you don't opt into these things. It's happening, right? It's not a bug in the system. They're collecting information all the time. And so I've, I've been having this small fight with the ACT directorate, education directorate, about Google Chromebooks because um, they've rolled it out. It's compulsory from year seven or now even younger. They're thinking about rolling it out among preschoolers. It's absurd. There's no evidence for that. Um, without really explaining what's happening behind the scenes in terms of what Google is doing with that data. Um, so I think it's about having first and foremost honest conversations about what it is we know and asking our representatives in Parliament to help us understand um, and then, yes, building alternatives. You know, So I am a scholar attached to the Australian Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, and I'd have to admit that there are, you know, better minds thinking on this 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 topic. What to do? You know, can we create an Australian um, Google, as it were? Can can we? Why can't we have one that that we decide 
is in the national or common good interest that um, doesn't have, you know, the, those commercial imperatives, you know, is that possible? I think I, coming back to the law is manufactured, the law is a construct, it's about political will, you know, and unfortunately some big political players have used the platforms in ways that have undermined democracy and efforts to get at the truth. Um, so they're not interested. So it's left to those functioning and accountable democracies to have the conversation about what we dream of, um, the the natural limits of big tech, what it is we can do. I mean, could governments invest in big tech and become, um, you know, major shareholders? So that forces the change at board level. I don't, I don't really know. I think there's something really exciting though, just to sort of be the optimist or the, you know, it, but I think this idea that the problem is so big and that, you know, that saying of, you know, I can't be free until we're all free. I was looking at the, the privacy issues and thinking about privacy as a public good. And so I could, I could be switched off from Facebook. I could have all the privacy settings on my phone, but the data, the size of the data is so enormous. And if everybody around me is using that kind of tech, the world, you know, people mining the the data will know about me. They'll be able to pick up enough information about me. And so until we see privacy and, and tech privacy as a public good, none of us can sort of really opt out. And I think there's, although that is very daunting, at the same time it says, ah, there is the system, the structure that needs to change to protect us all. And I think that's, you know, what I, I love about talking with you, Tony, is that link between the individual practices of, you know, literally getting muddy <laughs> um, and, as you say, those those structures that we're in and thinking about the levers that we... Yeah, I mean, the advocacy that. I've been doing and, and to say there are positive things happening is in that world we might call healthy digital child, you know, pushing for safer online environments for our kids. I think we've gone through a period of serious experimentation. The change has been so swift and we're playing catch up and we're seeing, you know, schools or directorates um, say, right, we're going to ban smartphones in classrooms. It's a no-brainer. It's just taken years. And uh, so we're winning that fight somewhat. Um, meanwhile, I think the climate stuff means that the mental health challenges created by tech have, are exacerbated. But anyway, it's workplace surveillance issues. So understanding your rights in your workplace, it's beginning there. It's, you know, we all go to Bunnings. Well, I was just disgusted and I haven't been in Bunnings since learning about their um, uh, facial um, recognition tech. You know, it's sort of using your feet um, and... Um, protesting things as you see it, but how to reimagine the public sphere to create alternatives, <laughs> to rehabilitate our information ecosystem so that they work for us. That's big stuff and um, I, there are people working on it, so not to lose hope at all. Um, yes, it's, it's, um, it's huge. So, Tony, you wrote somewhere an area, art is an area to help liberate young and old, spaces to lose ourselves, to find ourselves. And these spaces feel particularly rare and precious in modern life, particularly as we, you know, respond to the pings on our phone. And we are in a time of real crisis and, and real complexity, I think. You know, like you were saying, we have the phones are telling us there's this crisis and there's this crisis and there's this horrible thing and that horrible thing. So what do you, can you tell us a bit about, you know, you're an artist. What's the role of the arts in making sense of all of this right now? Mm. Well, you're right. Uh, we are on hyper alert all of the time, adding to our sense of anxiety. Um, the arts, the non or low, non digital or low tech arts, as I call it, um, create space for um, both therapeutic practice. So you know, everything from making clay bowls to to painting portraits where you are able to play with colour or, um, you know, the texture of, of, of clay in your hands where you're able to kind of, as you say, forget yourself or, as I said, forget yourself to gain yourself. It's 
it's um, precious time to help create space to process the complexity you talk of. Um, so I definitely encourage, you know, it doesn't have to take over your life, but developing arts and crafts that fit you. I mean, the other thing that's going on for me is drumming. So I'm trying to be playful um, with my, my youngest teen still at home in ways that are not natural to me as an earnest, you know, <laughs> social justice advocate. So drumming is, is one way to find release and fun. It, it is about actually finding fun beyond, you know, the arts as, as, as space for lament. So for me, the visual arts, certainly in the last few years, has been a place for me to find a room to process my deep lament about a changing climate, um, making work from um, large painted canvases that look like emergency shelters that reflect this liminal time to the uh, possibilities of public lamentation, regaining the public idea of lamentation because we all are grieving in our own private ways. Bereavement practice is typically about the death of a loved one or the unexpected deaths of others in a disaster, but it's still largely private. Most expressions of grief are private. And the arts create space for that grief to become public. So you, you do the painting, you know, of someone um, surviving, you know, floods in northern New South Wales, and then it becomes the talking point and, and the public finishes the work. You know, work is, is completed by the viewer. So you're having a conversation in the arts and, and, a, and a gentler one not with the metronome of the news and the heightened anxiety and conflict that news generates. It's a, it's a quieter space. I mean, it can be provocative for sure, but I think the, the arts offers us spaces to re-energise our sensory selves as well as to have conversations about our social realities. Is that hitting you like it's hitting me, Lily? Uh, all I want to do, I'm thinking of the image of the people smashing their phones and turning that into art. Like, Just that that notion of, of that public and shared lamentation. Like I, I've spent a lot of time on the internet since COVID. We're um, isolating pretty hard in my house because of my husband's health. And the thing that I am missing with my full body is shared uh, experiences where we as a collective go through a shared emotion. Um, and I think that really ties into what Clara Rourke was saying in her book, Together We Can, about climate grief. And she was specifically going to a climate grief event, but for that shared emotional acknowledgement. And I, I think that idea of the arts as that conversation is really powerful. Well, we're not alone, are we? And uh, we made to feel alone and even though we're connecting digitally it's not the same to so being in real space in situ doing I mean uh, social practice arts which is what I'm trying to develop um, looks like dialogue um, that's recorded whether the text or conversation is the material not paint as we know it or other things we might typically call art material but the conversation is the material and that becomes work. It becomes a, a short play. It becomes a poem. It becomes a performance, um, ideally a performance um, outdoors or, you know, with, with your, your feet in, in, in the sand, embodying experience where, you know, art meets the soul. And, and when you do that, honestly, you, the, the issues haven't gone away, but you feel stronger for the issues as they will emerge. So, yeah, I mean, I can't s sing enough about the power of the arts. And, of course, we saw the value of the arts during the pandemic um, at, at large. We know, we know that uh, there's something about the arts that goes to what sometimes can't be said, the power of the arts to take us to deep <laughs> um, caved parts of our inner selves um, but but we know how universal our emotional lives are. So so if I'm feeling it, there must be other people who are feeling it. And um, in in sharing, finding solidarity for the road ahead, I think. 
as we're kind of coming to the end, I mean, I feel like there's just been so many amazing things to think about and I can see Lily is frantically writing notes and I've got things <laughs> all over the table. Um, but as when I was speaking with Claire O'Rourke on our last podcast, at the end of her book, she has this line that says, love this country, fight for it. And I, I just love that phrase. And so I guess my final question is, you know, you're clearly working, fighting, creating, you know, all the words for, for love, for care. Um, so my question really is, what is it that you love and what are you, what are you doing this work for? <laughs> um, what am I doing this work for? I think we kind of began there, you know. I think, I mean, when I was a teen, I had to wrestle with why is there so much suffering in the world? What do I do with all that suffering? And so in wrestling with that existential question as a young person, I came to it looks like responding with compassion and grace. It looks like, you know, doing what I can in the face of terminal, absurd and unjust suffering, being who I would want in the face of my own suffering, like being... um, modeling modeling something that inspires others but also treating others as I like to be treated so it's it's pretty fundamental to a lot of religious teaching certainly the ancient teachings of Jesus Christ so what motivates me is as love um and uh, you know, Desmond Tutu would be among the other key inspirations in Ubuntu so so um, reflecting love in the world, uh, you know, one conversation at a time, one engagement at a time, hoping it grows and, and seeing and knowing that it grows. Um, and uh, I think on the tech front, you know, it is the village that helps you overcome some of this. So we have people down the road who are incessant cyclists, you know, they're in the rain, in the hail, they're on their bikes. <laughs> and they inspire me so. If I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't think to be a bit brave on a cold winter's Canberra morning, you know? And so you have to see it. And I think that's, that's, it's the power of one. It's the power of many. <laughs> You've heard that before, but it's, it's how do I, how do I exhibit hope, joy, and love in the world? Um, currently I'm, I'm working in the feminist space in the uh, gender rights space. It's really complex because nothing doesn't touch it. And it's very exciting. It's very exciting. We have a government that gets it, that wants to do gender responsive budgeting. You know, what are the impacts on gender? Do we make things worse for women in the unpaid care economy? You know, asking the questions, the power of the question, which we've reflected on today, is there, you know, that's why I went into journalism, the the power of the question. So it's asking the questions, but it's also being, being love in the world, I think, that motivates me most. Um, yes. Oh, but what a, what a lovely way to end. And I'm just so thankful for your time today, Tony. It's been such a rich and interesting conversation and, and such a joy to chat. So thank you so much. Oh, so delightful. Thank you for the honour of being on your show. Thank you, Tony. It's been a treat. Thanks so much. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. 
And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org. Or Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.